Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Samuel de Champlain ran the fledgling colony of New France and took personal charge of organized explorations of the unknown interior of the continent. Where Champlain did not actually travel himself, he sent other men. One was Coureur des Bois, or Wood Runner, Etienne Brûlé, the first white man to cross Pennsylvania and later the first to see Lake Superior, the greatest of the Great Lakes. As a contribution to geographical knowledge, the expedition of 1609 disclosed the existence of a noble lake to which Champlain fitly gave his own name. Four years elapsed before Champlain was enabled to plunge once more into the depths of the forest, this time only to meet with the severest disappointment of his life. Much has been said already regarding his ambition to discover a short route to Cathay. This was the great prize for which he would have sacrificed everything save loyalty to the king and duty to the church. For a moment he seemed on the point of gaining it. Then the truth was brutally disclosed, and he found that he had been willfully deceived by an impostor. It was a feature of Champlain's policy that from time to time French youths should spend the winter with the Indians, hunting with them, living in their settlements, exploring their country, and learning their language. Of Frenchmen thus trained to woodcraft during Champlain's lifetime, the most notable were Etienne Brule, Nicolas Vignot, Nicolas Marcellet, and Jean Nicolet. Unfortunately, the three first did not leave an unclouded record. Brule, after becoming a most accomplished guide, turned traitor and aided the English in 1629. Champlain accuses Marcellet of a like disloyalty. Marcellet's defense was that he acted under constraint. Vignot, with more imagination, stands on the role of fame as a frank impostor. Champlain spent the whole of 1612 in France, and it was at this time that Vignot appeared in Paris with a tale which could not but kindle excitement in the heart of an explorer. The basis of fact was that Vignot had undoubtedly passed the preceding winter with the Algonquins on the Ottawa. The fable which was built upon this fact can be best told in Champlain's own words. He reported to me, on his return to Paris in 1612, that he had seen the North Sea, that the river of the Algonquins, the Ottawa, came from a lake which emptied into it, and that in seventeen days one could go from the falls of St. Louis to this sea and back again, that he had seen the wreck and debris of an English ship that had been wrecked, on board of which were eighty men who had escaped to the shore, and whom the savages killed because the English endeavored to take from them by force their Indian corn and other necessaries of life and that he had seen the scalps which these Indians flayed off, according to their custom, which they would show me, and that they would likewise give me an English boy whom they had kept for me. This intelligence greatly pleased me, for I thought that I had almost found that for which I had for a long time been searching. Champlain makes it clear that he did not credit Vigneault's tale with the simple credulity of a man who has never been to sea. He caused Vigneault to swear to its truth at La Rochelle before two notaries. He stipulated that Vigneault should go with him over the whole route. Finally, as they were on the point of sailing together for Canada in the spring of 1613, he once more adjured Vigneault in the presence of distinguished witnesses, saying that if what he had previously said was not true, he must not give me the trouble to undertake the journey, which involved many dangers. Again he affirmed all that he had said on peril of his life. After taking these multiplied precautions against deceit, Champlain left the Sault St. Louis on May 29, 1613, attended by four Frenchmen and one Indian, with Vigneault for guide. Ascending the Ottawa, they encountered their first difficulties at the Long Sioux, where Dillard, 47 years later, was to lose his life so gloriously. 
Here the passage of the rapids was both fatiguing and dangerous. Prevented by the density of the wood from making a portage, they were forced to drag their canoes through the water. In one of the eddies, Champlain nearly lost his life, and his hand was severely hurt by a sudden jerk of the rope. Having mounted the rapids, he met with no very trying obstacle until he had gone some distance past the Chaudière Falls. His reference to the course of the Gatineau makes no sense, and Laverdière has had recourse to the not improbable conjecture that the printer dropped out a whole line at this point. Champlain also overestimates considerably the height of the Rideau Falls, and is not very exact in his calculation of latitude. The hardships of this journey were greatly and unnecessarily increased by Vigneault, whose only hope was to discourage his leader. In the end it proved that our liar, as Champlain repeatedly calls him, had hoped to secure a reward for his alleged discovery, believing that no one would follow him long, even if an attempt were made to confirm the accuracy of his report. But Champlain, undeterred by portages and mosquitoes, kept on. Some Indians who joined him said that Vigneault was a liar, and on their advice Champlain left the Ottawa a short distance above the mouth of the Madawaska. Hi everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Holding westward at some distance from the south shore, he advanced past Muskrat Lake, and after a hard march, came out again on the Ottawa at Lake Allumette. This was the end of Champlain's route in 1613. From the Algonquins on Allumette Island, he learned that Vigneault had wintered with them at the time he swore he was discovering salt seas. Finally, the impostor confessed his fraud, and falling on his knees, asked for mercy. The Indians would gladly have killed him outright, but Champlain spared his life, though how deeply he was moved can be seen from these words. Overcome with wrath, I had him removed, being unable to endure him any longer in my presence. After his confession, there was nothing for it but to return by the same route. An astrolabe found some years ago near Muskrat Lake may have been dropped from Champlain's luggage on the journey westward, though he does not mention the loss. Apart from disclosing the course of the Ottawa, the voyage of 1613 is chiefly notable for its account of Indian customs, for example the mode of sepulture, the tabagi or feast, and the superstition which leads the Algonquins to throw pieces of tobacco into the cauldron of the Chaudière Falls as a means of ensuring protection against their enemies. Of the feast given him by Tassuat, an Algonquin chief, Champlain says, The next day all the guests came, each with his porringer and wooden spoon. They seated themselves without order or ceremony on the ground in the cabin of Tessuat, who distributed to them a kind of broth made of maize crushed between two stones, together with meat and fish which was cut into little pieces, the whole being boiled together without salt. They also had meat roasted on the coals and fish boiled apart, which he also distributed. 
In respect to myself, as I did not wish any of their chowder, which they prepare in a very dirty manner, I asked them for some fish and meat, that I might prepare it my own way, which they gave me. For drink we had fine, clear water. Tesuat, who gave the tabagi, entertained us without eating himself, according to their custom. The tabagi being over, the young men, who are not present at the harangues and councils, and who during the tabagi remain at the door of the cabins, withdrew, when all who remained began to fill their pipes, one and another offering me one. We then spent a full half-hour in this occupation, not a word being spoken, as is their custom. But for the dexterous arrangement by which Champlain managed to cook his own food, the tabagie would have been more dangerous to health than the portage. In any case, it was an ordeal that could not be avoided, for feasting meant friendly intercourse, and only through friendly intercourse could Champlain gain knowledge of that vast wilderness which he must pierce before reaching his long-sought goal, the sea beyond which lay China. As for Vigneault, his punishment was to make full confession before all the French who had assembled at the Sault St. Louis to traffic with the Indians. When Champlain reached this rendezvous on June 17, he informed the traders of all that had happened, including the malice of my liar, at which they were greatly amazed. I then begged them to assemble in order that in their presence, and that of the savages and his companions, he might make declaration of his maliciousness, which they gladly did. Being thus assembled, they summoned him and asked him why he had not shown me the sea of the north, as he had promised me at his departure. He replied that he had promised something impossible for him, since he had never seen the sea, and that the desire of making the journey had led him to say what he did, also that he did not suppose that I would undertake it, and he begged them to be pleased to pardon him, as he also begged me again, confessing that he had greatly offended, and if I would leave him in the country, he would by his efforts repair the offense and see this sea, and bring back trustworthy intelligence concerning it the following year, and in view of certain considerations, I pardoned him on this condition." Vigneault's public confession was followed by the annual barter with the Indians, after which Champlain returned to France. We come now to the voyage of 1615, which describes Champlain's longest and most daring journey through the forest, an expedition that occupied the whole period from July 9, 1615, to the last days of June 1616. Thus, for the first time, he passed a winter with the Indians, enlarging greatly thereby his knowledge of their customs and character. The central incident of the expedition was an attack made by the Hurons and their allies upon the stronghold of the Odendagas in the heart of the Iroquois country. But while this war party furnishes the chief adventure, there is no page of Champlain's narrative which lacks its tale of the marvelous. As a story of life in the woods, the voyage of 1615 stands first among all Champlain's writings. As in 1609, there was a mutuality of interest between Champlain and the Indians who traded at the Sioux. His desire was to explore, and theirs was to fight. By compromise, they disclosed to him the recesses of their country, and he aided them against the Iroquois. In 1615, the Hurons not only reminded him of his repeated promises to aid them, but stated flatly that without such aid, they could no longer attend the annual market, as their enemies were making the route too unsafe. On their side, they promised a war party of more than 2,000 men. A further proof of friendship was afforded by their willingness to receive a missionary in their midst, the Recollet, Father Joseph Le Caron. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.